This podcast is a recording of a September 2017 plenary lecture at the annual Chronic Disease Academy. Ian Galloway, a senior research associate at the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, explains how non-traditional partnerships can support innovation in chronic disease prevention and control and health promotion. National Association of Chronic Disease Directors CEO John Robisher will introduce Ian Galloway. For more information on this topic, or to learn about the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors, please visit us on the web at chronicdisease.org. Morning, everybody. So today we're going to continue our ambitious learning schedule. Now I have the distinct pleasure to introduce our next speaker, Ian Galloway, who is the director of the Center for Community Development Investments at the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. Ian's work focuses on a variety of community development topics, including crowdfunding, investment tax credits, social determinants of health, impact investing, and pay for success, also called social impact bonds. He recently co-edited the book called What Matters, Investing in Results to Build Strong, Vibrant Communities, which explores outcomes-based funding and contracting in the social sector. Ian generously donated 250 copies of the book so all of you could have it, uh, learn from it, and take it home with you and share it with your colleagues. It's going to be a great reference book for you moving forward. He is also the author of Using Pay for Success to Increase Investment in Non-Medical Determinants of Health, published in November 2014 in an issue of Health Affairs. Ian holds a master's degree in public policy from the University of Chicago and a BA in political science from Colgate University. Please join me in welcoming Ian Galloway. Thank you, John. All right, good morning. Uh, So I have been looking forward to this for a long time. Uh, Thank you all for having me. Uh, This is a topic that I care uh, very much about and very passionate about. Uh, We just published this book, uh, which, uh, thank you for the kind words, uh, John. Uh, It's also a great sleep aid if you have a hard time falling asleep at night. It's 500 pages, um, 80 authors, uh, each providing a different perspective on outcomes-based funding and financing. There's actually quite a few health-related chapters in the book, uh, so hopefully it's, it's useful to all of you. Um, So before I get into my presentation, uh, I want to answer the question that that you're probably all asking quietly in your heads, which is why in the world is somebody from the Federal Reserve here at 8.15 in the morning talking to us about the non-medical determinants of health? And there's a long answer to that, uh, but the shorter answer is uh, the Federal Reserve is is committed to uh, addressing uh, poverty. Uh, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, and this is the traditional hook uh, for for my department, the Community Development Department at the Federal Reserve. Uh, It's less exciting, um, but it's the reason we exist. There is a law, it's an obscure law, if you don't work in in the community development field, called the Community Reinvestment Act, the CRA. It was passed in 1977. It requires banks, which we regulate, to invest in low-income neighborhoods. And uh, that takes a lot of different forms. It's largely real estate development, affordable housing, community facilities. Um, But increasingly, 
we would like to see that bank capital be deployed uh, differently uh, to address things like uh, the social determinants of health and human capital development uh, that goes beyond uh, real estate uh, investment. So that's, that's one of the reasons that the Federal Reserve focuses uh, on poverty. Uh, the other is not the official position of the Federal Reserve, and I, I don't speak for the Fed, I should say that at the outset here, uh, but uh, monetary policy is a fairly blunt tool, uh, and when you think of the Fed, you probably think of interest rates and our monetary policy function, uh, but the truth is that adjusting interest rates uh, is, is uh, not necessarily the most uh, targeted way of addressing disparities uh, across communities. And the truth is, is even though the economy as a whole is doing very well uh, post-recession, uh, there are pockets of extreme need in this country uh, that are not being addressed by uh, that monetary policy function. And the Community Development Department is uh, sort of our, our, our more targeted way of dealing uh, with those, those pockets of need and disinvestment. Uh, so that's, that's why I'm here. I also personally believe that the future of, of community development work uh, is health. And, and I heard that you had a, a very inspiring uh, speaker yesterday mention the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation tagline uh, that uh, your, your zip code is more important to your health uh, than, than your genetic code. If that's actually the case, then I think we need to bring the zip code improving folks uh, from the community development field in closer alignment uh, with the health, uh, uh, health sector uh, so that we can work more strategically together instead of in our traditional silos. So that's, that's sort of just a, a bit of, of background on, on my work and, and the role that the Federal Reserve plays in, in, this, in this area. Um, I'm gonna talk to you about a, a little bit of a, a wonky topic uh, for, for 8.30 in the morning, so bear with me. Uh, but, but I really want to uh, hopefully expand your thinking a bit about the kinds of, of funding, financing, and contracting tools that are now available uh, to the, to the anti-poverty field uh, and the health field that can get us closer to the outcomes that we really want, which of course is, is preventing disease before it occurs and improving uh, health outcomes and reducing disparities. Uh, across populations. So that's, that's what I'm going to focus on in my presentation. So first of all, what's the problem that we're dealing with? Uh, and none of this is going to come as any kind of surprise to, to you folks in the room. So that's us. We're not doing so hot. We're, we're spending a lot more money on health care than everybody else. And, and we're getting pretty, pretty middling outcomes in terms of, of life expectancy compared to everybody else. And it's actually a worse story than that. Uh, there, there are pockets in the United States uh, where we have communities that are getting significantly worse uh, health outcomes. Uh, you can see there's, there's a geographic distribution effect here. Uh, this is also life expectancy. Uh, there are counties in the United States that, that have a life expectancy disparity of 20 years, uh, which uh, Ellen Mira, I think, sums up nicely is, is absurd, 
for a country like ours with the, the wealth that we have and the, and the money that we spend on, on healthcare. But the important takeaway here, I think, from that slide and, and from the research uh, that went into it is that actually 60% of the difference, difference in life expectancy across counties uh, can be entirely explained by socioeconomic factors, uh, which again is not gonna come as any kind of surprise to you all. It tracks perfectly with what we've known for a long time, which is that what happens in the doctor's office and access to healthcare and health insurance is just a tiny slice of a much larger pie of determinants uh, that go into your, your health. Uh, so, so none of this is, is shocking. Um, but what is shocking is that we can't seem to do any better. We all know what the problem is. Uh, we all think it's, it's, it's broken. Uh, but we can't seem to get out of this, this cycle where we're spending a lot of money and we're not getting particularly great outcomes. Uh, even though we, we know what the solution is, and that of course is to invest upstream in communities, in neighborhoods, to address disease and health uh, before uh, disease uh, actually materializes. So we're in the car, we're the car in this, in this picture, uh, and this is, this is our, our challenge, and of course this is a very common, common metaphor that, that I'm sure you've all, all seen, seen or heard, heard before. Uh, so this is our challenge. We, we know that we keep driving off the road, and we, we keep falling to the valley floor below, and the car explodes, and we're a bloody mess. And the, the, the solution to this, from a, from a healthcare standpoint, is to do the, the compassionate thing, to do the compassionate thing in the moment. We have an emergency, we treat the emergency. We build the hospital at the bottom of the hill to treat all these people who keep driving off, off the road. And, and there's nothing wrong with that because we, we obviously want to be able to treat people when they're, when they're in need of, of, of medical care. Uh, the problem is this, is this is mostly all that we do. And it's not just healthcare. Uh, there are, are a number of, of uh, systems that operate the same way. Our criminal justice system uh, operates as effectively a hospital at the bottom of the hill. We, we wait for people to commit a crime and require incarceration to spend $70,000 a year on them. Instead of spending that money on job training or early childhood education or the uh, many, many, many determinants of crime, we wait until they commit the crime and then we lavish funding on them, which makes no sense. And the same is true of, of a lot of social programs out there. Uh, and I, I come from the nonprofit world. Uh, I think a lot of nonprofits do really, really important and good work, but it tends to be treatment oriented. It's, it's treating a problem that, that could have been avoided uh, in the first place. Homelessness is a, is a great example. Uh, so so this, is, this is the world as, as we know it. This is our treatment-oriented um, system that we've, we've built. Uh, and as, as you can see, it doesn't do anything to address the underlying cause, which is, of course, people, people driving off the road in the first place. So what, what's stopping us from, from doing what everybody in this room knows is the critical next step, which is to start investing upstream, 
straightening the road, putting in better guardrails, better signage, whatever it is. What's stopping us from doing the common sense thing uh, of avoiding all of these problems in the first place? So I think that is the critical question that we're all wrestling with. It's, it's what we tried to get at in the book. Um, that's the thing that's holding us back and keeping us from making this, this change. I think it's two, two problems, and they're related, and it's what's locked us in this endless cycle. Uh, the first is money. So we're all cash-strapped all the time. You feel that resource uh, constraint all the time. And so when I come and speak and, and talk to nonprofits and, and funders and others, and I say, hey, you, you, gotta be up, you gotta be investing differently. You gotta be focusing upstream instead of downstream. They say, I don't have the money to do that. The need today is so overwhelming. All of my resources go to treat the need and none of my resources are available to invest upstream to prevent the need in the first place. What, what can I do uh, if I'm so resource constrained? And the truth is, is that infrastructure that we've built to treat all of these problems is really, really expensive. Healthcare alone, as, as everybody here knows, is really, it's 18% of the economy, $3.2 trillion. It's going up. I, I read a statistic recently that uh, that's projected to be $4 trillion by, I think, 2025, which is not that long from now. Uh, that's a huge amount of money that's going to treat disease. And as everybody in this room certainly knows, a lot of that disease is chronic disease, and a lot of it is preventable. So a huge portion of our resources are going to maintain this infrastructure at the bottom of the hill. None of it is left over to invest upstream to prevent the infrastructure from being necessary in the first place. So that's sort of the first major challenge that we're trying to address. The second major challenge is a little bit more nuanced, but I think actually is more important than the resource constraints. And that is investing upstream is risky. Sometimes it doesn't work. And what happens if you start dismantling that infrastructure, if you start closing hospitals, shutting down prisons, uh, shutting down nonprofits who, who treat problems to fund upstream stuff that would prevent those problems from happening in the first place, and it doesn't work. What happens then? All your money's gone, and you no longer have a system in place to deal with the problems that are still occurring. So that risk, no matter how small, is enough to keep all of those partners, all those systems, from taking a chance and investing upstream. Uh, and, and you can just think about this, in, and I think in a health context, it's like asking a health insurance company to take money in their claims budget to invest in the upstream social determinants of health. Let's say it's, it's to address obesity and type 2 diabetes. We know that access to fresh food and vegetables is correlated with both of those things. We know that a lot of low-income neighborhoods are food deserts, for example. Let's say we asked a health insurance company to invest in supermarkets to be built in these food deserts to serve uh, the people living in those neighborhoods. And it actually doesn't reduce obesity and type 2 diabetes. What happens then? We've cannibalized our claims budget to pay for upstream projects 
that didn't actually improve health. The health insurance company is the one holding that risk, and they're now in a heap of trouble. Right? They, they don't have the money now to pay the claims associated with the disease that has persisted despite the investments that were made upstream. So that risk is enough to keep that health insurance company from distributing their resources in any kind of different way. Because it's easier, it's safer, nobody gets fired if you just keep paying healthcare claims. So that's, that's to me, the twin challenges, the resource scarcity challenge and the risk challenge that are locking us into this perpetual cycle where we know, we know this is not the right way to do it, but we have no ability to, to, to change. I was at a, a conference uh, yesterday. Uh, we were doing sort of a little road show for the book, and I was in DC. And one of the speakers, uh, we were, I don't know why, you know how themes kind of come up organically in conferences and people start riffing off each other? So proverbs kept coming up. And somebody quoted a proverb, not sure where it was from, but the proverb was essentially, if you're going down the wrong path, stop. <laughs> which, which makes too much sense to be true. So we know we're going down the wrong path every day with this, and yet we can't stop. And that's, that's the problem. Uh, so, so what's the solution? There's lots of ways to get it at these, these challenges, the resource challenge and, and the risk challenge. Um, one of the ways to solve the challenge is to start paying for the end result that we want, paying for success in this context, instead of paying for programs upstream that we hope will produce the results that we want. And that solves both of our problems, right? If we're waiting until something actually happens to pay for it, we don't need the money now. Right? So we don't need to be, we don't, we don't need to be resource rich now to, to get those things. So it solves our, our cash flow problem because we're waiting until the result is produced down the road. And then it also solves the risk problem. If something doesn't work, you're not paying for it because the result wasn't produced. So you're waiting until the end of a process, then you're paying for the result and you're paying for the result out of the savings that have accrued to you, in large part, because you've avoided the need for treating something expensive. That's kind of the, the holy grail of pay-for-success outcomes-based funding and financing. That's the, that's, and it's, of course, never that simple, but that's what we're trying to do with this tool. Uh, and, and I'm gonna walk through really briefly uh, how that tool works, and then actually give you a, a concrete example of how it's been deployed in a chronic disease context. So hopefully that gives you a good sense of, of what, we're, what we're going for. So what is pay for success? Uh, first of all, it's a performance-based contract. It, uh, as I mentioned, it identifies a result that you want, and it certainly doesn't have to be health-related, it could be education-related, it could be uh, criminal justice related, it could be really anything that is valuable to the system, uh, and specifically to a, a end payer. And, and, and again, I apologize for the, the, the wonkiness of this, um, but the end payer is usually a government agency. Uh, it doesn't have to be, it could be a foundation, it could be uh, 
could be a wealthy individual. Uh, it's anybody or anything that values a particular social or health outcome. So a health insurance company is a great example, actually. Reducing chronic disease means reduced healthcare claims. Therefore, a health insurance company could be an end payer in one of these performance-based contracts. The end payer gets linked to a nonprofit that is very good at addressing some kind of social challenge. Maybe it's a, it's a challenge that's, that's uh, addressing a social determinant of health. Uh, that contract links those two parties. The end payer says, hey, I really want to see uh, all of these kids in, in this neighborhood become kindergarten ready. That's important to me. Maybe I'm the county, maybe I'm the state or the city, uh, but that result is very important to me. And it's worth $10,000 per child that you can deliver to me that is in fact kindergarten ready, who otherwise would not have been. Because the alternative is uh, that kid shows up in kindergarten so far behind that I have to track them into special education. Not because they have a learning disability, but because they're just not prepared for kindergarten. That's expensive to me. So I'd rather avoid that outcome, and I'd much rather pay for kindergarten-ready kids instead of remediating challenges once they've already occurred. So that's, that's how this performance-based contract would work. You identify what the, the end goal is, how long the nonprofit has to produce it, who the end payer is, who the nonprofit is, an independent impact auditor is usually included in the deal. How you measure this stuff is really, really important. How you define it. Is it measured against a control group? Is it a historical baseline? All of that is critical to, to these contracts. All of that's written into the, into, the, into the deal. And then just to underscore why we call this pay for success, the end payer only pays if success is achieved. So if you're paying for kindergarten readiness and you don't get kindergarten readiness, you don't have to pay for it. So that's, that's the essence of a pay for success contract. I'm sure you're all wondering, how in the world is this nonprofit going to run its programming and pay its staff and keep the lights on while it's waiting to be paid for something that it may not actually produce? So that cash flow problem is solved a couple of different ways. First of all, I want to say, this kind of contracting is not without its critics, and there is, it's, it's somewhat controversial in, in our field, uh, and the reason for that is that in many cases, nonprofits have to borrow money to run their programs before they're paid back by the end payer based on their success. And there are a lot of people, and I, I have a lot of respect for this, this perspective, uh, I don't share it, uh, but there are a lot of people who are uncomfortable with financial institutions of any kind being involved in the social sector. They don't like the feel of Bank of America making money off of poor kids. And I completely understand that. I think that there are ways to write these contracts where you keep the investor entirely separate. They can't meddle. They don't have any input into how the nonprofit is doing its work. They're basically just making a loan and getting paid back based on how effective the nonprofit is. It's basic utility. 
I think there are ways to write these contracts that, that keep the financial interests separate from the work. And it's not dissimilar, frankly, from what we do across the entire community development finance industry. Affordable housing gets built because banks invest in it. Community facilities get built because banks invest in it. Uh, federally qualified health clinics get built because banks invest in them. And we're more comfortable, oddly, with banks investing in real estate that helps people than we are with banks investing in nonprofits that help people. Uh, so that's been sort of an interesting sort of um, uh, pushback that I've, I've uh, seen as I've sort of presented this, this idea to the nonprofit community. There is this, this discomfort with, with that role. Um, but I digress. When you have a cash flow problem, you may have to borrow money to pay, your, pay for your programs until you're paid back. That's the second element of pay for success is this financing piece. If you're a big enough nonprofit and you have a big enough balance sheet, you can self-finance. You, you can pay for your program yourself and then if you're successful, you get a big cash payout at the end from the unpayer, you can grow your organization. So there's no reason why you necessarily have to access financing, but many nonprofits are too small to self-finance, so they may have to. And it doesn't have to be a bank, it doesn't have to be a private financial institution. Uh, it, it, could be an, it could be a foundation, it could be another funder, uh, but you may have to, to borrow the money to run your programs. The terms of that financing obviously are gonna depend upon how likely it is that the nonprofit's going to succeed, how much track record that nonprofit has at doing the work, and the length of the contract. Is this a six month contract or a 10 year contract or a 20 year contract? All of that will affect the terms of the financing. And then the really important point here, and it goes back to the, that slide with the car, is that the investors are the ones that are bearing the risk. So if the nonprofit does not produce a cohort of kindergarten ready kids or does not address a health disparity or whatever's written into the contract, there is no end payment. There's no success payment made by the end payer. So the nonprofit has no ability to repay their investors. So the investors are the ones who are holding the performance risk of the nonprofit. And if the nonprofit doesn't succeed, they're the ones that don't get paid back. So they're, they're taking the, the risk. So really quickly, I wanna walk you through an example of pay for success in Canada. And, and I usually don't talk about international examples. There's dozens of, of projects around the world uh, that, that I know very little about. Uh, so uh, just to apologize, my focus is, is typically on, on domestic uh, pay for success projects. Um, but this is a particularly good example for all of you. And so I wanted to, to share it with you. Um, but I'm less of an expert in the particulars of this deal, uh, just to warn you in advance. Uh, so in this case, the outcome that they're trying to achieve is reductions in heart disease, strokes, and heart attacks. So in Canada, and I think this is, this is the case across the industrialized world, heart disease and strokes kill tens of thousands of people. Hypertension is a uh, leading risk factor. Uh, of course, it affects over half of Canadians over the age of 60, and another quarter of Canadians over the age of 60 are pre-hypertensive. So these are the folks that we want to prevent from getting heart disease in the first place. 
So this is, this is how they're, they're identifying kind of the, the success outcome that they care about, is preventing heart disease defined as uh, hypertension. So if you can keep them from become, becoming hypertensive, then you've succeeded. So that's, that's the, the framework for the project. The intervention, the nonprofit uh, intervention, is gonna be limited to Toronto and, and Vancouver. I believe this project has launched. I don't have any uh, initial data on it yet, um, but it's, it's been launched in Toronto and Vancouver. Uh, they're screening 29,000 uh, individuals over the age of 60 uh, with the goal of identifying 7,000 who are willing to participate in the project and who are pre-hypertensive. So that's the goal, the, to fully subscribe the program. They need 7,000 people who, who fit that, that profile. The, the project goal is to take that cohort of 7,000 people and reduce their average blood pressure rate by two points. So that's, that's, that's the goal of the, the overall project. The cost of providing this non-medical intervention, it's a community-based intervention, I think there's a technological component to it, I think they're trying to you know, ping people on their iPhone and remind them to exercise, who knows? But it's not medical, it's a non-medical intervention. The cost of providing this service to 7,000 people is $3.4 million. If they hit an absolute home run and actually hit that target of reducing average blood pressure by two points, the investors in this project stand to get $4 million back. So they have to provide the initial $3.4 million to run the program, and then if it's a success, they have the potential to get $4 million back. So that's an 8.8% uh, IRR, uh, rate of return, uh, which is relatively modest because they're the ones holding all of the risk. If things go terribly wrong, they don't get any money back. Uh, so it's, in the larger scheme of things, a relatively modest return. It's a six-month contract period, which is unique in the world. Most of these projects have a several-year time horizon contract period. In this case, it's six months. And the reason for that is there's not a lot of outcomes out there that you can reasonably produce in that short a time, right? It it's, takes much longer to get a cohort of kids kindergarten ready or to eliminate a health disparity or to reduce recidivism rates or whatever, whatever you're trying to achieve with one of these projects. This is unique in the world that they're trying to do this in six months. Uh, so there's not a lot of, of similar projects out there to look at. A lot of cooks in the kitchen, which is a common uh, element in these kinds of projects. I hope in the future these things will be simpler, um, but they're kind of building the bicycle as they ride it. So there's just a lot more uh, organizations and technical assistance providers and consultants and lawyers than are necessary to do this. Uh, but for now, there's a lot of folks involved to pull one of these off. Uh, the Heart and Stroke Foundation is the nonprofit that's going to be providing the intervention itself. The public health agency uh, in Canada is the end payer that's going to pay for reductions in, uh, in blood pressure. Uh, the Mars Center was the consultant in the deal. Ten investors provided that, that initial uh, uh, investment in the project, and then 
SRDC is going to be the independent evaluator who will actually measure whether or not they successfully reduced blood pressure rates. I'll get through this as quickly as I can. Sorry, this is the obligatory flow chart to explain this. But I think it's helpful because it, 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 it explains kind of how everybody fits together. Uh, so at the heart of this project and any other pay for success project, you have that performance-based contract. In this case, it's between the Heart and Stroke Foundation and the Public Health Agency of Canada. Uh, there's a project board that informs the deal, but that's the essence, is that initial performance-based contract between those two parties. Once they've established that contract, they've written out the terms of the deal, what's the payout rate, how do we define success, how do we measure success, the Heart and Stroke Foundation reached out and raised investment capital to run the program from 10 investors. They used that investment to provide their community-based intervention. Six months later, SRDC will measure blood pressure for all 7,000 participants, and based on how successfully they have reduced blood pressure or slowed its, its, uh, its, its rise, the Public Health Agency of Canada will pay the Heart and Stroke Foundation, who will then pay their investors back. And of course, if they are unsuccessful in reducing blood pressure, no payments are made, and the investors are not paid back. So this is a boilerplate pay-for-success contract. You could swap blood pressure out for kindergarten readiness or any other social outcome that you care about. The players will all be the same. Uh, and the way that they interact with each other. So this is very, very conventional, the way that this came together. So they actually have two outcomes, and one is more of an output than an outcome that is going to trigger success payments. The first is based on enrollment. How successful were they at actually getting 7,000 people to participate in the project? That will trigger ba a basic payment. So every person that signs up, you get a payment. Uh, so that's more of an output. The bigger and more interesting measure, of course, is did they actually reduce blood pressure? Did they slow the progression of hypertension? Uh, and that's, that's the outcome that I think they're striving for with this project. But there are actually two performance metrics being used uh, to uh, pay back the nonprofit who pays back the investor. So that first one is, is that $230 is for every person they enroll. So that's the quick hit payment. If they can get 7,000 people enrolled, uh, they'll get $1.6 million immediately from the Canadian Public Health Agency. So that's the output metric. The outcome metric is graded on a scale. So if they hit an absolute home run and they take this group of, of over 60-year-old Canadians who are pre-hypertensive, pre and they actually manage to, on average, to reduce their blood pressure. So not just slow it down uh, or stop it, but reduce it. Then the public health agency makes a $2.4 million payment back to the nonprofit. So, that's, so you combine the $1.6 million for enrollment with the $2.4 million for hitting a home run, and that's where you get that $4 million max payout that would then flow back to the investors. Let's say you're slightly less successful at reducing blood pressure. So you, you didn't reduce it, but you stopped it. 
So it's no worse than it was uh, when you started the project. That's a slightly lower payment, but still significant, $2.25 million. And then let's say you're slightly less successful than that. So you didn't decrease it, you didn't stop it, but you slowed it down a little bit. It didn't increase at the rate that it should have, and you attribute that to the, to the intervention. That payment is $1.75 million, so you can see the, the trend here. And then the fourth scenario, no success. You had no impact whatsoever on reducing blood pressure for this cohort of 7,000 prehypertensive people. You get nothing. So significant disincentive to fail in this case. So this is the way that the, the payment sort of schedule is set up. Uh, and again, it's this combination of, of an output metric with an outcomes metric. And, and the reason they did that, I think, is because it actually reduces the risk a little bit to the investor. Because getting somebody enrolled is a much lighter lift than reducing their blood pressure. So no matter what, the investor will probably get $1.6 million because they will probably fully subscribe the program. Uh, so they really only have this $2.4 million at risk uh, and that, that's assigned to the, to the outcome of reducing blood pressure. So I think that's why they did it is to sort of de-risk it a little bit so it wasn't quite as risky to the investors taking it on. So as I mentioned at the outset of the presentation, this is one way to pay for outcomes. There are lots and lots of other ways. And uh, having just wrapped up this book and, and uh, suffering the PTSD that goes along with that, all of these are in the book. Uh, some of these are conceptual. Some of them have actually been deployed in the world. Some of them have been deployed in the world for things that have nothing to do with poverty. Uh, one of my favorite examples is the X Prize, which paid to, uh, which created an incentive to basically send, send people to space. And uh, I can imagine redeploying that tool to close the achievement gap at a uh, low-income school. Why don't you know? We know that across both public systems and and in terms of lost wages, every high school dropout in the United States over the course of their career will cost society, so that's the public system, but also that individual uh, themselves, a million dollars, every dropout. And so I don't see why it's so crazy to set $50 million aside for a school to basically eliminate high school dropouts. And if they're successful, they get $50 million. I think they would find a way to make that happen uh, if they knew that society valued that outcome uh, at the rate of $50 million. So there are some examples that could be redeployed uh, in different contexts. So what needs to change, really briefly? Three things. Data is super, super important. These things live and die based on data. How we measure things, how, how, how much we believe the data that we actually have. Are we using the same definitions? CDC means something very different to all of you than it does to me. Community Development Corporation is what CDC means to me. We need to be all on the same page. 
if we're gonna do this kind of stuff, data and definition-wise. We need significant policy reform. We need to break, and we talk about this all the time, breaking down silos. But we really need to do it if we're gonna do pay for success, because if you're building a housing project and the benefits accrue to the health agency, then the health agency needs to pay for the housing, or vice versa. So we need to break down those silos, or this is never gonna work. And our policymakers need to assign value to particular health or social outcomes. We need, to, we need to actually put on paper, what is it worth to us to reduce hypertension? What is it worth to us to have a cohort of kids kindergarten ready who otherwise wouldn't? We need to be able to put a dollar value on that or this isn't gonna go anywhere. And then finally, we need to start paying for results and not paying for programs, process, and compliance, which is the status quo that we're all very familiar with. So those three things need to change if we're gonna do this uh, at any kind of scale. Uh, that's my presentation. Thank you all so much. Thank you.